Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard. One, two, three, four! People do feel very radically different about gender experience. I mean, that's just like the rules of feminism. That diversity is like the number one thing I think that has to be reckoned with. Agenda with women in the arts. You're listening to Agenda by Women in the Arts. I'm Isabel Hawthorburn. And I'm Katie Winton. We've got a huge show for you today. And we know it's been another week in a string of very difficult weeks for the LGBTQI plus community. And we certainly don't want to add to that pain, which is why we're going to bring you some of the more positive news from the past week. And there is some really funny and sweet and exciting news uh, and some really great music that we're going to share with you over the next half an hour. But we did feel that it was necessary to address some of the news that hit pretty close to home this week. Yeah, we're not going to give much airtime to some of the really awful things that have quite literally been flying around the city. Um, But we do want to touch on something that happened on Monday. you might know of a band called Post Motel and they were supposed to play a show at Oxford Arts Factory last Saturday night. Um, But after an argument with Sydney four-piece band Hair Dye, they pulled out of the show by posting a claim that they'd been involved in a car crash of sorts. So it was kind of like this metaphorical car crash that meant that they were unfit to perform and they posted a stage photograph of one of their members wrapped in bandages. And then they kind of... uh, posted a statement that said on the night of the show, Hair Dye in Anger set up a shrine at Oxford Arts Factory and sent a member of their band a text message, which we've deliberated a lot about reading out on air. And I think that Hair Dye should definitely be publicly shamed. Yeah, we um, talked a little bit about it and the kind of, the, that decision of publicly shaming people and calling people out and the kind of trauma that comes with reproducing the, that yeah. language and that rhetoric. Um, and we didn't want to reiterate that trauma um, that the text message caused. And it is really horrible. I can't stress that enough. Um, we'll post a link to it up on our website if you are interested in fully um, yeah. reading it. But it's um, <coughs> really horrible. Yeah, very awful homophobic slur. Um And it's made me think about what it means to publicly shame people via social media because we're living in a time right now where we call people out all the time and call-out culture can result in some very real-world consequences. And I think we saw that with Hair Dye. Like, I spoke to a lot of people who were kind of like, well, I'm never booking them in a show ever again. Which is great. Yeah, totally. And I think the divide between public and private spheres with online identity is pretty much disintegrated. And there's this book that came out recently called So You've Been Publicly Shamed by Welsh journalist and documentary maker John Ronson, which kind of details the pack mentality that can arise from public shaming and the disproportionate consequences that can sometimes arise from opinions being voiced on social media. Um, Yeah, there are some pretty damaging ramifications in that kind of internet herd mentality with mm. call-out culture. But I think in this instance, Post Motel had every right to call out hair dye for the message that they sent, especially given the weight of homophobia in the political climate um, that Australia that we're in at the moment. Um, particularly after this weekend, like you said, there was a, the vote no written in the sky and it really felt like hatred was in, like physically in the air and people were really grappling with homophobia in their own communities. Um, and so it just seemed particularly cruel at a time when the music industry should be loudly championing and defending the LGBTQI plus community that they should uh, yeah, be spreading this like horrible vitriol. Um, Having said that, there's never a time where that kind of hate speech should be tolerated. Yeah, totally. I stand very strongly with Post Motel in the way that they went about publicly shaming hair dye on social media. Um, I mean, I was mentioning that book because it made me think of the extremities or the kind of um, different types of ways that you can call people out. But in this instance, I do agree. I think 
it was absolutely necessary. Um, and I actually know Monty, who's the member of Hair Dye, who after he'd been publicly shamed on social media, he sent, he sent the text message for one. Mm. And then he wrote a pretty equally awfully constructed apology. And I'm kind of ashamed to think that my first thought when discovering it was him that did all of this was like, oh, but he's a nice guy. And I can't believe he'd do something like that. Like that was the thing that ran through my head. Mm. You kind of start retroactively totally. making you know excuses for them and positioning them. But there's a uh, there's a catalogue essay article written last year by another friend of Agenda, Courtney Sanders, who we had on a few months ago, called "Why 2016 Should Mark the Death of the Nice Guy." Um, and I keep going back to this argument because there hasn't been much um, of a counter argument or even much. Um, conversation in the media around the message from hair dye and I think that the apology that was issued on Facebook um, to address the um, them being basically called out for it really evades any responsibility and we see this time and time again it's like I'm sorry I hurt your feelings Mm. I'm sorry you offended rather than I did the wrong thing and this kind of strange weak platitudes about like pulling together that kind of completely um, erase the um, the trauma that people experience through this kind of hate speech. Or even recognising the kind of experience or the privilege that has led you to make a statement that is really awful mm. and kind of deconstructing that and saying, like, this is the context that I did. Th-. Or not even this is the context because I think that is, again, excusing it. But I don't know. I just want to say that um, it's absolutely not good enough in 2017 to be a nice guy and it's not even good at all. I think it's a blanket excuse that we use for privileged white woke blokes who think that they're allies, but are actually the problem. <laughs> woke blokes. I um, have not heard that before. Well, that was a coin termed by my lovely housemate and uh, past FBI radio presenter, Ellie Graham. So thanks, Ellie, for that one. Thank you, Ellie. Um, but I think, yeah, the apology just seemed to come from someone who didn't really know the impact of what they'd done and, and um, was kind of scrambling to publicly apologise. Mm. Uh, and it said something like Sydney's artistic community should always strive to work side by side and in recognising the vision and hurt that actions like this cause, I will be maximising my commitment to this effort. Interesting. I'm very <laughs> interested to see how he maximises his commitment to an effort to work side by side. Uh, I mean, what does I that mean? I know. It's it so, doesn't, like, yeah, it anyway. doesn't make sense. I feel like his mum kind of told him what to say in the apology. Right? And interestingly enough, Post Motel have publicly stated that they will only accept apologies from his mum. So maybe right. it's fitting. Interesting. Well, um... On the same day that that really horrible news came out, um, it was kind of this, the Emmys were happening on a Sunday night in America and Lena Waithe became the first black woman to win an Emmy for writing in a comedy series. And her, um, yeah, so her acceptance speech was aired in the wake of all of that kind of Australian music industry hate speech. So um, Waith co-wrote the Thanksgiving episode of Aziz Ansari's show Master of None, and it's probably the only episode of that series that passes the Bechdel test. I haven't actually looked that up, but I'm pretty, I can like, <laughs> go out on a limb and say that it is because it Aziz Ansari is still <laughs> very much chasing his manic pixie dream girl. Anyway, so <laughs> Lena Waith delivered this speech that... Um, I definitely needed to hear and I know I had a little a little weep on Monday afternoon <laughs> yeah. at my desk and I think you did as well. Yeah, I definitely did and I actually sent it to my colleague who was having an awful day because of all the no campaign hatred. So here it is. Thank you Aziz for pushing me to co-write this, bro. And last but certainly not least, my LGBTQTIA family. I see each and every one of you. The things that make us different, those are our superpowers. Every day when you walk out the door, put on your imaginary cape and go out there and conquer the world because the world would not be as beautiful as it is if we weren't in it. And for everybody out there that showed us so much love for this episode, thank you for embracing a little Indian boy from South Carolina and a little queer black girl from the south side of Chicago. 
This is Agenda with Katie Winton and Isabel Hawthorburn. Charlie? Charlie? She want a picture with Tommy. You know she come from the country. She doesn't afford Tommy. She can't afford Tommy. You pay the bill like you want me. You fly me out like you found me. Can't find another girl, Tommy. Can't find another girl, Tommy. She wanna know who's Tommy. Who's this girl, Tommy? She wanna know who's Tommy. All these bitches get off me. Nobody fuck like Tommy. Nobody talk like Tommy. Nobody walk like Tommy. All these bitches get off me. You know I wear her figure. You know I stay when you wear her. You know she hit me, you know that. You know she did me, you know that. I got a gun, Tommy. My dogs are around for me. I don't need you, nah. I don't need you, nah. This is my song, Tommy. Who made a beat, Charlie? What do you want on me? What do you need, Tommy? We got a moment like baby. We in this church, save me. I do not fuck with you, maybe. I don't know who you are lately. Tommy Genesis' new track, fittingly called Tommy. And we're going to be joined very soon by composer Lisa Ilian. But first, we wanted to catch you up on all the week's news from a feminist perspective. Um, and it seems our Kardashian segment segment has been usurped by the segment <laughs> where we just talk about Rihanna's inclusive new cosmetics line, Fenty Beauty, which caters to 40 complexions across the complexion spectrum. Shots fired because a <laughs> uh, friend of Agenda and brilliant artist, uh, Sydney artist Angela Tiatia, is very, says that uh, Rihanna's... Um, foundation is very thick and dry and you need to mix it with moisturizer or have a very good primer. Which I just think is true of all foundations. I think that primer is very important. <laughs> but it's also- probably not very important to talk about. <laughs> um, but I think that... Um, oh, so American beauty junkie and uh, nurse Crystal Roberts, who has albinism, which means that she has no pigment, um, has found it very hard to find foundation that makes her not look orange. And she recently posted a picture that has gone viral using the Fenty foundation. Um, and she actually uses um, perfect match uh, number 110, <laughs> which you. isn't important even information. important information. Um, but it isn't even the lightest in the collection. And so I think when Rihanna came out and, and started talking about it, she said that she wanted to, um, you know, cater to uh, to people um, at all ends with all different complexions. And that's something that, like, brands like L'Oreal talk about when they, um, when they advertise women of colour without actually having um, complexions that match them. So I, I don't know. I just was like, it's it may not be very good... Texture-wise, but pigment-wise, it's really... Yeah, and Angela totally acknowledged that in her post as well. Exactly. Um, Yeah. So we can put that in good news, along with, weirdly enough, a story involving Hilary Bernardi. Um, So Bernardi was outraged that students at an Adelaide primary school were encouraged to wear a dress um, or casual clothes to school and bring a gold coin donation, um, where they hoped to raise $900. 
So these primary school students learned about how female students in Africa were limited in their access to education. And so the students came up with an idea to come to school wearing dresses or casual clothes or their uniform, but they'd have a gold coin coin donation. To which Bernardi tweeted, one school in South Australia now has wear a dress day. This gender morphing thing is really getting absurd. Sorry, I just can't read that without laughing at the... Particularly because it was like like the students came up with the idea. It's such a sweet kind of thing and he managed to turn it into this really gross thing and obviously the internet um, and Twitter in particular um, immediately clapped back and Josh Thomas um, was one of those people that clapped back and he donated $2,000 to the charity which then prompted other people to um, contribute as well. Yeah so they raised like over $180,000. Whoa really? Yeah and he tweeted they're five times their fundraising goal now this is the first night in a while I will log a lot of Twitter feeling joyous. Yeah, more than $180,000 was raised. Really? Yeah, look. I can't believe that. It says that right there, $180,000. That is incredible. So poor Corey Bernardi. And I did want to take (laughs) this moment to acknowledge our brothers in the white cis heterosexual male over 30s community, um, (laughs) which we really don't do enough on agenda. Liberal politician Mark Patton, Mark Payton, uh, has used parliamentary debate on inclusion to lament the lack of um, government support for um, heterosexual white men. They may be overrepresented in politics, big business, the majority of Australia's publicly listed companies, and they overwhelmingly um, control boards and financial institutions and banks. Um, But they are so often excluded um, in the conversations about inclusions and diversity. So we really do need to take this time to um, acknowledge their commitment. Yeah, thank you. Um, So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The truth hurts. Yeah. Uh, Which is a very good segue into this new track from Lizzo. So stick around for our chat with um, Ensemble Offspring composer just after this. I've been there. We don't fuck with lies. We don't do 
attention like aye, aye, aye. You're listening to Agenda on FBI Radio. We're joined now by composer Lisa Ilian, who will be premiering a work with Ensemble Offspring for Who Dreamed It? Their latest program of new and experimental works by female composers, all featuring Australian soprano and vocal actress Jessica Azodi. Thanks so much for joining us, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us about your new work that's with Ensemble Offspring? Yeah, so um, it's a piece for female soprano and instrumentalists and also... um, some sort of fixed electronics, which have a, a very subtle but important part in the piece. And uh, it's a work which Ensemble Offspring sort of floated the idea of about 18 months ago. So I wasn't working on it that entire time, but it's certainly been kind of percolating for a while now. And what is, um, for people who don't have a background on Ensemble Offspring, mm. who are who are Ensemble Offspring? And what's so, the kind of, um, what music or what's the kind of scope of what they do? They are a Sydney-based um, contemporary music ensemble who I think I think they're 21 years going. Or they've wow. they've been around for quite a while, and um, they program a really diverse range of new and contemporary music. Um, a lot of it acoustic, but a mixture of things, and they do different events as well. Cool. And so the new composition Cantor, which Ensemble Offstrom offspring will be premiering before it tours around the world is based on poetry by American writer Willa Cather. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that text in particular? Yeah um, so when I was um, working on this I had a lot of different texts on the table and I guess I was quite drawn to things which had a directness and a simplicity and also which um, had a voice which I felt comfortable giving to Jess and also felt comfortable writing myself so um, I quite like that this the voice of this text was sort of equally gentle but also strong and resilient. What yeah. is the te- what is the poem about? Uh, so it's from a collection of poems which um, were published in 1903 um, called April Twilights. I guess the overarching sort of theme of the poetry is about how one can bear solitude but coming at it from lots of different angles and I mean some of the texts that I chose um, are quite beautiful reflections on the landscape but you know the landscape is also a way of marking out the solitude that she feels within that space. And what's that relationship like in terms of approaching somebody to use their poetry, turning it into a musical composition and then giving it to someone else to then voice? Is Mm -hmm. that a collaborative process or is that more of a kind of process where it is very individual and I guess happens in solitude? (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, in this case, um, the poems are quite old. Mm. So uh, my approach to them, I couldn't I couldn't set the entire text just pragmatically. It would have been too long. But the aspects that I chose, I hoped, were representative of the spirit um, of, of the rest of the work. And then um, in terms of 
it being for Jess, we had mm. kind of met and spoke a lot. So I had a sense of what kinds of things might work um, with like the matching of our personalities in making something. So this was the first time that you'd worked together? It's the first time we worked together. Um, I saw Jess do a wonderful performance of a um, long work for orchestra and voice with Sydney Symphony Orchestra last year. So we'd, I'd met and heard her sing, but not written anything for her. An ensemble offspring have committed to voting their entire 2017 artistic program to music composed by women. And I was wondering if you could tell us about your experience working with Ensemble Offspring and the significance or impact of this commitment. Hmm. So well, in terms of working with Ensemble Offspring, I found them to be incredibly generous and supportive, which is just so important in artistic community. And that's something which I think um, seems to be growing especially like among women just um, really trying to be supportive of one another and um, helping each other kind of flourish I think the um, dedication by Ensemble Offspring this year to a year of um, all-female composers is kind of quite a strong statement about just trying to change um, the habits of programming and um, for example, the, the concept for today, uh, I'm really lucky to be in a program with four other like really outstanding um, composers who come from all over the world, so sort of Taiwan, Korea, uh, Ireland and Iran, and um, putting together a program like that, if you, if you put together a full program of works of really high quality, then there's no reason why you couldn't be putting together programs which are 50-50. So it sort of sets a precedent. Yeah, and I think we've seen that in terms of um, policy change a lot recently. Um, Mm. There was a recent study commissioned by APRA AMCOS that found that just 13% of these composing music for screen are women, which is quite a small percentage um, and mm. in interviews women talked about the screen composing industry as being this kind of like boys club while men were more likely to talk about the industry as a mediocrity do you think meritocracy meritocracy sorry <laughs> <laughs> mediocrity was like, like linking Slip. it to <laughs> linking it to only male composers um, do you find that there's a similar gap in understanding of gender issues between men and women in classical composition um, so I guess those terms, I mean, they seem to crop up across all fields to some extent. But um, what I have found is that uh, the the strong kind of community of women that are starting to really champion one another and work together, and then also um, the extraordinary... Um, imagination of so many women working is probably going to change those terms over over a number of years but it it is something which is good to really be aware of and I think keep um keep supporting like women who are working in this way I think it's a really interesting time that we're in at the moment where that responsibility in terms of representation is being more recognised as kind of a responsibility of organisations as well as artists as well. Like it kind of seems to be a broader policy conversation as well, which I find mm. is a really good kind of shift. And I don't know whether that policy conversation, and we see this even in things like music festival lineups, for instance, um, 
where people are being called out on it. And we've been talking a lot about call out culture today. Mm. And I don't know whether that, yeah, I don't know whether that shift is kind of moving in a more positive direction, but it feels like that responsibility is being kind of given to everyone who makes those decisions rather than exactly just the artists which I think is really great and having women present in every yeah. sphere yeah as well. exactly rather than just kind of a lot of um males on a board choosing women to be in the spotlight like you're kind of seeing that that uh representation is important in all aspects of that kind of um hierarchy I guess exactly yeah so we kind of are looking mainly at the APRA AMCOS um, findings and you're mm. saying you're working with artists from around the world do you feel like there's a similar kind of gender disparity or do you feel like there are particular places that are maybe doing it better than we are or well I, maybe worse <laughs> I don't know the stats although mm. I do know that it seems like um, in terms of women who are working in composition Australia is actually really good. Oh, good. Um, oh, maybe that's bad. <laughs> well, I think what I think it means is that there's there's a lot of uh, talent and kind of imagination out there, so it's something to embrace. Mm. Can you tell us about the event today? Who dreamed it at Carriageworks? Um, who who was involved in it, and what will the shape of it kind of look like? Yes, yeah, so maybe for people who haven't aren't necessarily super. Um, what's it called? haven't had a lot of exposure to um, this kind of music. There's a lot of, I mean, the program is is really um, full of really different, wonderful things. So there's a work uh, which opens by uh, Irish-born composer Jennifer Walsh, which is um, irreverent and fantastic. Uh, there's a work by um, Annie Shea, who's Taiwanese but via Australia, um, and her work is uh, really a lot about how people listen and communicate with one another. So um, a a really contemplative, um, deep listening kind of experience. There's a work by Anahita Abazi, who's an Iranian-born composer, uh, which is really theatrical and has all these kind of different layers of consciousness woven through it. And then um, after my piece, uh, there's also a work by Unsuk Chin, who is... um, a Korean-born composer uh, has had, yeah, a lot of really interesting things. And they're all sung by the same person? Yeah, so Jess is involved yeah. in um, most of those pieces. Right. Yeah. And it kicks off at 2 p.m. at Carrie It kicks Tracks? off at 2 p.m. And uh, it, is it a ticketed event? Do people have to buy tickets? Yes. It, <laughs> it's ticketed. And I think I saw that if you are a student, there might be special prices from 1 p.m. Ah, so hot right. tips. <laughs> we'll post a link up to that. Yeah, definitely. Um, thank you so much for coming in to talk to oh, us today, Lisa. Thanks so much for having me. It's been really lovely to it's speak to you. Um, we'll leave you with a track now by Post Motel. This one is called The Rain. You've been listening to Agenda on FBI Radio.